Good evening. Happy New Year. It's so good. It's so good to have all of you back. We were around the last three weeks and the campus was so quiet and it was kind of lonely around here. Um, this is what the gathering looked like the last few weeks. It was just me. No one was here. Trig didn't even show up. I know, his job's not that hard. Um, but it's so good to have uh, all of you back. Uh, I'm excited about the message tonight. And to kick us off, we're going to have Seth, who's a sophomore from Wyoming. <laughs> Wyoming the city, just to be clear, not the state. Uh, and Seth is going to read uh, three short uh, passages from Scripture. So our first Scripture is from Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Uh, second, we have from 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And finally, I have 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 5. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. It is the Lord who judges me. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of my heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Seth. So uh, tonight, our topic is image. And uh, if you've been around, if you were around last semester, you know that over the course of this academic year, I'm doing uh, kind of a mini sermon series of my own on various topics related to hope. And what we're trying to do is look at how we can find hope. And I'm looking at some topics in particular that seem sometimes like they're kind of hopeless. And so this evening we're looking at image and we're gonna operate under the premise that we all have an image problem. By image, I mean both the way we look and the way we present ourselves. Uh, we're 12 days into the new year, 12 days into 2020, uh, which means that we are at the height of the new year's resolution season. Um, According to one estimate that I read recently, over 100 million Americans have made a New Year's resolution this year. That means over 40% of the adult population of this country has something about themselves that they wanna fix. And by far, by far the most common thing that people wanna fix about themselves is something about the way they look. According to Time Magazine, the top three resolutions are number one, to lose weight, number two, to exercise more, and number three, to eat healthier. All three of those are at least partially related to looking better. Gym memberships. Gym memberships across the country this month will be up 30 to 50%. The second full week of January, which is the week that starts today, is historically the most crowded week at exercise facilities across the United States. Maybe you'll notice that at the Dow or wherever you happen to work out. But if you're a regular at the Dow or wherever, uh, don't worry about the additional crowds because most studies show that by next month, the new people will have disappeared. Uh, most gyms say that by the end of February, they've netted only a one to 2% increase in new members, if anything at all. Maybe, maybe all of these new people have decided that they're beautiful just the way they are. Or maybe, like me, they've decided that the cause is pretty hopeless. Let's take me as a case study. Uh, here's the thing about me. I'm shorter than I'd like to be. I have a lot less hair than I wish I had. My ears stick out a lot more than I wish they did. My, cheekbone, my cheekbones and my chin aren't as well-defined as I would have designed them to be. 
And here's the thing, here's the thing I've learned. I can't fix any of that by working out more. <laughs> so I've spent most of my life, I've spent most of my life working really hard to be beautiful on the inside. And <laughs> that might sound, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> that might sound noble. It might even sound spiritual. I assure you it's not. It's not. See, here's the thing. I've decided that since I can't look beautiful on the outside, I'm going to overcompensate by presenting the very best version of my personality that I possibly can. To be honest, I learned to do this from a pretty early age. Um, this might surprise you, but I was kind of a scrawny kid. And uh, <laughs> I was picked on a little bit. I, I don't know if I'd use the word bullying. We didn't throw that word around when I was a kid like, like it's thrown around today, but I was definitely picked on as a kid. Uh, for me, a lot of it happened at the middle school bus stop. And uh, I, the bus stop was like a block and a half walk from my house. And I would walk to this bus stop. And I, uh, there was about four or five other guys who would wait at the same middle school bus stop with me. And these four or five other guys happened to be really big dudes, like huge people. Now, I was really tiny, so everybody compared to me was pretty big, but these guys were huge dudes. Two of them would go on to become starters of the high school football team. And for some reason, these guys thought it was really funny to make fun of my shoe size. I was like a sixth or seventh grader, and I was still deep into the kid shoe sizes. And these guys were huge dudes, and they were deep into the adult shoe sizes. And they would, they would, they would physically, this is what they do, they would physically pin me down, and they would take off my shoes at the bus stop, outside, and then they would throw around my shoes like it was a football. Although it was really small to be a football, it was more like a baseball size. Um, and they would, they would throw around my shoes, and they just thought this was so funny to look at how little my shoes were. So I remember this, I, I remember this, I went to my home to my room one night, and I just resolved, I said, I've got to do something to earn their respect. So I resolved to make two things abundantly clear about my personality. Number one, I would be really smart. I, would, I knew that on the inside I wasn't that smart, but I knew I could work hard. I could work hard to get really good grades in every class and earn their respect that way. To be honest, I don't know if that worked. I think it probably backfired. I don't think these guys were the kind of guys who respected a little kid who got good grades. But the second thing I resolved to do actually worked. I resolved to not only be smart, but I wanted to be smart and funny. I decided that if I could get these guys to laugh on my terms, if I could get them to laugh with me rather than at me, that would feel a whole lot better. So <laughs> I don't know exactly how this started, to be honest. It seems weird, and it is weird, because it was totally sort of spontaneous. But one day, I was at the bus stop, and I could see that these guys were kind of about ready to go into their uh, routine. They were going to sort of pin me down and, and do the shoe thing. And I just, I just resolved, I've got to do something to be funny, something to be funny. So I don't know why I decided to do this, but I just spontaneously burst into an impression of a monkey. It's just a monkey. I started like jumping all around, you know, like hoo, hoo, hoo. I'm not going to do it now, but you get the idea. And <laughs> I have to say, it was a pretty good impression. I really put a lot of effort into this monkey impression. And here's the thing, it worked. These guys loved it. They started laughing hysterically at my monkey impression. The next day, I came back to the bus stop and they said, hey, do that monkey impression again. And so I did. I did the monkey impression again and it worked. They laughed hysterically. Well, it didn't take long for this monkey impression to spread from the bus stop to the rest of the school. Uh, these guys would see me in the lunchroom, the middle school lunchroom, and they would, they would say, hey, Skogan, do the monkey. And I would do it. <laughs> I would stand up on a table in the lunchroom and I would do the monkey impression for the whole middle school lunchroom. 
And I didn't mind making a fool out of myself. I didn't mind making a fool out of myself as long as people were laughing on my terms. And I figured as long as I worked really hard in my classes and got good grades, people would know that I'm not really a fool, but rather a smart kid who could make the cool kids laugh by being silly. Crazy enough, it sort of worked. And weirdly, the monkey impression followed me from middle school to high school. Uh, throughout my high school career, the monkey impression became a staple part of our high school uh, uh, basketball games and football games, the halftime show. Became part of the halftime show at my high school. Um, we dug up a couple of yearbook pictures. This is, by the way, this is a new level of vulnerability for a college president. This is my sophomore, this is my sophomore uh, yearbook picture from high school. This is my senior year of high school. This is, uh, my high school had something called Winterfest, which is sort of a winter version of homecoming. And I did it, I won Winterfest King. And here's me at the halftime of the basketball game. I'm still wearing the crown. I'm still wearing the Winterfest crown and I'm doing the monkey impression. And I, I don't know if you can see it, but my favorite part about this picture is the caption above the photo. It says, because of the great demand, Matt Skogan performs the monkey that everyone has been talking about. <laughs> So, weird, right? But it kind of worked. It kind of worked. I was able to present myself as this smart, funny kid, and it kind of worked. But here's the problem. I still hated the way I looked on the outside, and on the inside, I was incredibly insecure. I was so worried about being exposed for not as smart as I was trying to portray myself. And I hated the way I looked, and I hated the way I felt on the inside. And therein lies the basic human predicament when it comes to our image. Most of us don't like the way we look. And we know that on the inside, we have far more problems than we can possibly, than we can possibly fix. The Bible's pretty clear that we all have this image problem. The Bible basically says that external beauty will fade, external beauty won't last. So the Bible says, don't worry about that. Focus on the inside. God looks at the heart. But the Bible says that on the inside, we're hopelessly in need of repair, more repair than we can possibly bear on our own. There's this clever line in the book of James where James says that the Bible is like a mirror. I mean, think about mirrors. Here's the thing about mirrors. Mirrors alone have spawned billion dollars worth of industry in health and beauty. Because here's the thing about mirrors. Nobody walks by a mirror and says, perfect, don't need to change a thing. No, you walk by a mirror and you think, oh no, is that really what I look like? James says the Bible is like a mirror, a mirror to our soul. And when you hold up a mirror to your heart, to your soul, you see that things are pretty ugly on the inside. And so this evening, for the rest of our time, we're going to look at that image problem. And specifically, we're going to look at three, we're going to look quickly at three characters in the Bible who each have their own mini image problem. And we're going to look at what they can teach us about how to find hope in this image problem. First, we're going to look at David, King David. And David shows us that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And then we're gonna look at the Apostle Paul. And Paul tells us that there's only one opinion of us that really matters. And then finally, we're gonna look at Jesus, and Jesus has the best news for us of all. Jesus promises us that one day, our outward beauty will reflect perfectly the way that God sees us on the inside. So first, David. First, we're gonna look at King David. Um, and David, um, as you may recall, David has a bit of an image problem. Uh, David has seven brothers, there's eight in total, and his seven brothers are all big, tall, handsome guys. 
They're warriors. They look the way a king should look. They're trained the way that a king in that age was, was trained. And God says that it's going to be one of these sons, one of Jesse's sons, who's going to be the next king. And God picks David. David is the one who's a scrawny shepherd boy. And his seven other brothers are big, tall, handsome warriors. And so David steps into king not looking the way a king is supposed to look. He has an image problem. But David is able to step into that role with a deep, grounded confidence. Why? Because David knows that he is fearfully and wonderfully made. That's what David himself says in Psalm 139. You heard Seth read it a few minutes ago. David says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. Now, if you've been around a church environment very long, you've probably heard that psalm read a lot of times. But here's the thing about Psalm 139. If that psalm is true, which it is, you ought to never get over it. You ought to be dazzled and amazed by that every single moment of your life. Because what, what that psalm says is that your birth was a sovereign choice by God. My birth was a sovereign choice by God. God didn't have to make me. God wanted to make me. And God didn't have to make me this way. He wanted to make me this way with this hairline and these ears. He loves me this way. And he loves you exactly the way he made you. You know what? It's even better than that. He doesn't just love you. He likes you. He likes you. We can all think of a lot of people who we love, but we don't really like. God likes you the way you are. He likes hanging out with you. He likes the way you look. He likes you the way you are. Who are we to second guess God's handiwork? You were knit together. You are God's personal handiwork. Who in the world are we to decide what's attractive and what's not attractive? Those aren't God's standards. God didn't make those standards. We did. The only thing in all of creation that was made in the image of God is human beings. The only thing in all of creation that was, is God's uh, made in God's image. It's you and the people sitting next to you. I think we get this notion sometimes that um, it's in nature that we can feel close to God. I just happen to think nature is so overrated. I mean, nature, first of all, it's so dirty most of the time, so dirty, and it's so cold, so cold out there. I think a lot of us feel like, yo, it's in the woods on a hike or at the beach or in the mountains that we can feel closer to God. Here's the thing. There's only one piece of creation that is made in God's image and it's you, it's human beings. I think it's the case that you can never feel closer to God than you do when you're in a room of people who were made in God's image. And that's you, that's this room. The question is, what do you do with that? David was just dazzled by it. He was dazzled by it his whole life. He never got over it. He says over and over again, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you know what it means to be fearfully made? Fearfully made. It means that when someone looks at you, they're just in awe. They're just in total reverence. Wow, who made you? Who made that? It's God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's the first point. It's the first point that ought to give you some hope in your image problem. Second, uh, second uh, thing we learn from Paul, the Apostle Paul, and, and Paul shows us that there's only one opinion of us that really matters. Now, Paul has a bit of an image problem too. Uh, you know that Paul wrote most of the New Testament he founded churches all throughout the ancient world. Uh, one thing, though, that you might not know about Paul was that he probably wouldn't have one sexiest man alive. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible that describes his physical appearance, uh, physical, appearance physical appearance, 
Uh, but we do have a couple of historical documents that describe him. Now, these may or may not be totally accurate, but let's assume that there's some accuracy to these. There's one document from the second century that describes Paul this way. It says he was small in size, he was bald, he was bow-legged, he had eyebrows that met in the middle, and he had a rather long nose. So I, maybe, that's, maybe that's accurate, maybe it's not, but I think it's safe to assume that, that the Apostle Paul is not Ryan Gosling. He's not. Ryan Gosling is really good looking. And Paul is probably not. But one thing that's clear in the Bible, one thing that's clear in the, in the Bible is that Paul does not owe his identity to what anybody else thinks of him. This is a great line. You heard Seth read it. It's in 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul says, he's talking to the Corinthians, and he says famously, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. He's saying to the Corinthians, I don't really care what you think of me. And to be honest, I don't really care what any human thinks of me. The question is, how do you get to the point where you don't really care what anyone thinks of you? For a long time, uh, modern social science has pushed self-esteem as the answer to that. For a long time, modern social science would say that there's only one opinion of you that really matters, and it's your own opinion of yourself. Say, I care too much about what other people think of me because I don't have a high enough self-esteem. Paul thinks about it totally differently. It's so mind-bending what Paul says, because Paul, look at the, the, the second half of that verse. Paul says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. It's 1 Corinthians 4.3. And then the next line in that verse, Paul says, indeed, I don't even judge myself. He's saying, I don't get my identity from you. I don't even get my identity from myself. I don't really care what you think of me, and I don't even really care what I think of myself. He's saying basically that living up to any set of standards is a trap. It's a total trap. See, you can try to live up to standards that somebody else sets for you. Maybe your family, maybe your friends, maybe society has set some kind of expectation on you. And if you can't live up to those expectations, you feel bad about yourself. So one way out of that would be to say, well, okay, I'm just going to make my own standards. I'm just going to set my own rules. I'm going to decide what I want to be and then do that. I'm going to make my own test and then ace my own test. Well, there's two problems with that. One is that either you set high standards for yourself that you can't meet, and then you feel even worse, because not only can you not meet other people's expectations, now you can't even meet your own expectations. Or you set low standards for yourself, but then you feel even worse, because then you realize you're the kind of person who has to set low standards for yourself. It's a total trap. Trying to live by any set of standards is a trap. And Paul says, I got it, I figured a way out. See, Paul, it's just amazing to look at him. Um, he is this man of incredible stature. He's one of the most influential people who's ever lived. And yet, he has this quality where he's incredibly self-aware, and he's incredibly open about his own failings and his own moral shortcomings. Uh, he has this line, it's in 1 Timothy, where Paul says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He says, I am a chief sinner, not I was a chief sinner. I am a chief sinner. I'm a chief sinner. I'm a big time sinner. I'm a boss among sinners right now. That's what Paul says. I mean, this is totally amazing. This is totally foreign to us. We are not used to a leader talking this way. We are not used to a leader who is so open about their own moral shortcomings. I mean, here's the thing. I'm a chief sinner too. But when I dwell on that, I lose my self-confidence. Paul can talk with such confidence and such poise on one hand, and at the same time be so open about his own moral shortcomings. See, the problem with me is, yeah, as I said, I'm a chief sinner, but when I dwell on it, I lose my self-confidence. Why? Because I'm judging myself. 
Paul is not letting anybody else judge him, and he's not even judging himself. He's saying there's only one opinion of me that really matters. There's only one opinion of me that really matters, and it's my creator's opinion. That's it. That's it. It's the only opinion of you that really matters. The question is, and if you step back from your life, the question is, how much of your time do you spend trying to please other people? How much of your time do you spend trying to please yourself versus how much of your time do you spend trying to please your creator? Because here's the thing, like at the end of our lives, we're going to stand before Jesus. And what do you think Jesus is going to be impressed by? I mean, do you think you're going to stand before Jesus at the end of your life and do you think he's going to say, wow, you sure had smooth skin. What kind of lotion did you use? (laughs) Wow, you sure ate healthy foods. Where'd you get all that organic stuff? Wow, you sure had cool jeans. Wow, you sure worked out a lot. Did you do CrossFit? Jesus is not impressed by any of that stuff. By the way, do you know how you can tell if somebody does CrossFit? Don't worry about it, they'll tell you. (laughs) No, I love that, sorry. (laughs) I'm not trying to say that there's something wrong with eating healthy or looking good or exercise. And by the way, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that condemns laziness And there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that commands us to take care of our bodies. But that's a different sermon. The point of today is that nobody should care too much about your body because these bodies won't last. In fact, the very notion that we need to take care of our bodies, the very notion that we need exercise is a reminder that we live in a fallen world with broken bodies. And if the beginning of the new year is for you a reminder that you need to exercise more, it should all the more so be a reminder that you need God. Because from the moment you were born, from the moment you were born, your body began the process of deteriorating. And there's no amount of exercise that can stop that process. And that's where we get the best news of all. And we get it from Jesus himself. And Jesus himself shows us that one day, our outward beauty will perfectly reflect the way that God sees us on the inside. Jesus was raised to life. He was raised back from the dead. And the Bible says that he was the first to be raised from the dead and that for all of us who are in Christ, we will get to follow him. We'll get the same thing. We'll be raised from the dead. We'll get a new body, a new upgraded body. And I think it's interesting to notice a couple of things about Jesus when he comes back from the dead that maybe give us a hint of what our new bodies will be like. The first thing, and this, I know this is a simple observation, but I think it's kind of interesting. When Jesus comes back from the dead, He's still a human. He's still a human. He can be touched. He eats. He's still a human being. I think it shows us that there's dignity in being a human being. When Jesus comes back from the dead, he doesn't come back as an angel or some kind of spiritual being. He comes back as a human. I think it shows us that it's cool to be a human. Being a human is cool. There's dignity in being a human. We also see that Jesus comes back with a human body, but it seems as though he's got a bit of an upgraded body. He starts doing some things that makes it seem like he's got some new capabilities. For one thing, he starts appearing in rooms that have locked doors. He just kind of starts appearing and disappearing in different places. See, these bodies, these bodies that we have, have two main purposes. The first purpose is that they represent the outside world to our inner being. The second purpose is that they represent our inner being to the outside world. And what we know about these bodies is that they basically do a pretty flimsy job of both of those things. So how do our bodies represent the outside world to our inner being? Well, we have five senses. We have five senses. And the more we learn about reality in science, we learn that reality is so complex 
There's so much going on, and our five senses do a pretty flimsy job of representing reality to us. I just have a hunch that our new bodies will do a better job of representing reality to us. Jonathan Edwards has this great line. He says, why won't it be the case that our new bodies have a hundred senses? Maybe he's right. Pretty cool. Second thing is that our bodies do a terrible job of representing our insides to the outside world. We can all think of lots of people who have beautiful bodies but ugly souls. And conversely, we can think of a lot of people who have beautiful souls but pretty ugly bodies. There's not supposed to be a mismatch, and in the next life, there won't be a mismatch. One interesting thing about Jesus when he comes back from the dead. Jesus comes back from the dead, and he, he, he starts appearing to different people. And one thing that happens repeatedly is that he appears to people, and they don't recognize him at first. And then they look closer, and they say, oh, it is you. It is you. They don't recognize him at first, and then, then they look closer, and they say, oh, it is you. I think what that tells us is that he looks similar, but he looks different. Now, I'm making an assumption here. I'm making an assumption that his differences are upgrades. I'm making an assumption that when he looks similar but different, he looks better. I don't think his differences made him look worse. We're told uh, that his first body was unattractive. It says in Isaiah 53, uh, it says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So his first body, we're told, is unattractive. I'm making the assumption that when he comes back and people don't recognize him at first, it means he looks a little different. I think it might mean he looks a little more attractive. Who knows? C.S. Lewis has this book called The Great Divorce. And in The Great Divorce, it's a book about a, a group of people in hell who get to take a bus trip to heaven to see what heaven is like. And one thing they observe in heaven is that there are people who they recognize as being really normal, average-looking people on earth and in heaven they have unspeakable beauty. It's because finally, finally, their outward appearance perfectly reflects the way that God sees their soul. And that's good news for all of us. It's really good news for all of us, but it's especially good news for anyone who has suffered physically in this life. For anyone whose body has been a source of embarrassment or a source of pain or a source of discomfort in this life, this is incredible, unbelievable news. Johnny Erickson Tata is a Christian woman who had a diving accident in her teen years and she was paralyzed. She's been a quadriplegic for more than five decades. And she writes this. She says, I can scarcely believe it that I with shriveled bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees and no feeling from the shoulders down will one day have a new body, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone spinal cord injured like me, or someone with cerebral palsy, someone brain injured, someone with multiple sclerosis? No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. Only in the gospel of Jesus do people find this hope, new bodies, hearts, and minds. And of course, all of this is possible only because of what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus had unimaginable beauty in heaven, unimaginable acceptance in heaven, and he gave it up to take on a plain-looking body and be in a world that rejected him. He became hideous on the cross, bearing the full ugliness of our sins so that we might have his beauty in return. And that's it. That's our only real hope. See, for me, what started in middle school continues to this day. I still get insecure once in a while about the way I look. And I try my best to portray an image of having a beautiful personality, but I know that on the inside, I'm pretty messed up. 
I am a chief sinner. And so are you. So are you. We're all hopelessly ugly on the inside. And deep down, what we fear most is being exposed for who we really are. Thankfully, we have a God who was exposed for us, a God who was stripped and mocked and rejected in public so that our imperfections might be covered by his perfection. And thanks to that, one day we can never, we can have the chance to never experience shame again. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would remind us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we are handcrafted by you. I pray that you would uh, remind us that yours is the only opinion of us that really matters. I pray that you would ground us in this, and I pray that you would give us reminders of the real hope that we have in Jesus, the reminder that one day we'll have new bodies, bodies that will perfectly reflect the outward beauty that you see on the inside. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.